in the 50, 65 to 66 time frame, you had these sightings, which caused Congress to direct the Air Force to hold an independent study. And it would be obvious that that would only happen if you had cases that couldn't be explained or didn't seem to be explainable, at least. If you could explain all the cases and everybody accepted the explanations, then there would be no UFO subject. Ladies and gentlemen, you And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Coming at you a little later than I would have liked to, but that is because I'm working on a very big project. Let me plug it here. At the beginning of the show, for folks who are unfamiliar with this big news, I'm going to be serving as the MC at the upcoming Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire, Saturday, September 4th. It is going to be an amazing event. Speakers include Stanton Friedman, Peter Robbins, and Phil Imbrogno, as well as Steve Fermani from New England MUFON and the Exeter UFO Hall of Fame plus a whole bunch of fun and games for kids, crafts, costumes, parades, all kinds of cool stuff. And, best of all, folks, the whole shebang is totally free. This really is a tremendous opportunity for anybody in the New England area, New York, Pennsylvania, all those places, to check out an awesome UFO show for just the cost of how you get up there. If you want to find out more about the big event, go to www.exeterufofestival.com, Exeter, E-X-E-T-E-R, UFOfestival.com. Check it out, find out more about the event, and if you plan to make the trip up to Exeter, shoot me an email, I'd love to meet you, and I'm going to be having beers and stuff and partying my ass off on Saturday night, so anybody that's in the area and wants to get down and boogie, Shoot me an email, I'll be happy to let you know where the party will be at. Alright, now that I've got that gratuitous plug out of the way, let's get down to business here with this week's edition of the program. It is episode 2 of the final 4 of season 5, and we have got another A-list superstar guest. And beyond that, an interview that's really long overdue here for BOA Audio. I'm talking about legendary ufologist Dr. Bruce McAbee. He is here with us on the program to talk about his amazing career investigating the UFO phenomenon. He's been in this field since the late 1960s. That's 40-plus years, folks. And as you may expect here with BOA Audio, we're going to be delving into his whole career and a whole bunch of different areas of his remarkable tenure in the field of ufology. Here's the gist of what we're going to be talking about. We'll find out how he first got interested in this subject. He shares some really cool stories about what it was like in the late 1960s in ufology. He'll talk about some of the early cases he investigated. He'll give us his take on the evolution of the field over the last four decades, including the paradigm shift of ufology in the 1980s. He'll really go in-depth on his battles with debunker Phil Class. Some great stories in there. 
We'll get his perspective on this digital age and how that applies to UFO photographs. A lot of people write them off since anything can be faked. We get his opinion on that argument. We'll also cover the importance of UFO documents gleaned from the government and, of course, tons and tons more, including specific cases that he's investigated, such as the McMinnville photos, the 1978 New Zealand sightings, and the JAL case of 1986. Altogether, it's a journey through the last four decades of ufology with a man who has had a front row seat to the field's evolution, the legendary Dr. Bruce Maccabee. For those of you unfamiliar with Dr. Bruce Maccabee, quite frankly, his resume is stacked, as is his bio. Suffice it to say, he received his Ph.D. in physics from American University in Washington, D.C. in 1970, and in 1972, he commenced his long career at the Naval Surface Warfare Center. He's been active in the UFO research field since the late 1960s when he joined NICAP and was active in research and investigation for NICAP until its demise in 1980. He became a member of MUFON in 1975 and was appointed to the position of State Director of Maryland, a position he still holds. And in 1979, he was instrumental in establishing the Fund for UFO Research and was the chairman there for about 13 years. But wait, there's more, because Dr. Bruce Maccabee is the author or co-author of about three dozen technical articles and more than a hundred UFO articles over the last 25 years. He's the co-author of UFOs Are Real, Here's the Proof. He's the author of the UFO FBI Connection. And he's the author of the novel Abduction in My Life. So, talk about a decorated career, my friends. That is some serious accomplishment and contribution to this enigmatic field. He really has put in just yeoman's work over the last 40 plus years. I highly encourage you to dive into his website, which you can find at www.brumac.8k.com. Let me spell that one out for you. It's a bit technical. B-R-U-M-A-C dot number eight, then the letter K dot com. Brumac.8k.com. Check it out. And you've been waiting long enough, so let's get cooking, folks. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on August 6th, 2010. Dr. Bruce Maccabee, talking about his 40-plus year career researching the UFO phenomenon on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. We are marching towards the season finale here, and I am very excited about this week's guest. I am stunned, really, and embarrassed, to be honest with you folks, that it has taken me five years to get this guy on the program. He really is a legend in the world of ufology. He's been a part of the field since the late 1960s. Chances are, if you've been in the field for a while, if you've looked at the history of the field, or even just taking a look around at who are the dignitaries of ufology, you know this guy very well. He's the author of UFO slash FBI Connection, UFOs Are Real, Here's the Proof, and he's also written countless articles on the subject of UFOs, and he's primarily known for his study of UFO photography, which is a result of his long and esteemed career with the U.S. Navy doing a number of different things in optical physics. So without any further ado, please let me welcome somebody that I've wanted to talk to for quite a while, very excited to discuss his career as a ufologist. Dr. Bruce Maccabee, welcome to BOA Audio, and thank you humbly, sir, for coming on the program. Thank you for inviting me, and let me mention one more book, Abduction in My Life, which was uh, published in the year 2001. That's right. That's your fiction book, right? 
that's a it's a unique book because it's a combination of fiction and fact, and it's written in such a way that you can tell what part is fiction and you can distinguish what part is fact. In fact, you could cut the fact book right out of the fiction book, play paste all the fact pages together, and have yourself a fact book. There you go. Just make sure you buy the book first. Don't do it at the bookstore. It's a new type of literature called faction. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't you also write a book on Tesla as well? Uh, I did not write a book on Tesla. However, I have done a manuscript for a okay. play or mo or movie. And you, uh, on my website, if anybody is interested in a, what might be considered to be a stage play type of script. Wow, you are just so prolific. And of course, everybody knows, everybody who's in the field of ufology knows about your tremendous talent as a pianist as well. So, I mean, this guy, he's just all over the place, folks, with the skills. And of course, the website is brewmac.8k.com. And you spell brewmac pretty simply. Just take the beginning of Bruce Maccabee. It's B R U M A C.8k.com. Check that out. Well, let's start out. You know, obviously, you've had this just tremendously distinguished and decorated career in the world of ufology, but let's sort of start out by just what lit the fuse, you know, what started your interest in this strange phenomenon? I know you became a player, I guess you could say, in the world of ufology in the late 1960s, but what, what you know, what sparked your interest in this anomalous uh, aerial phenomena? Well, <clears throat> I was uh, going to uh, school in Washington, D.C. in the uh, 60s to uh, get my uh, Ph.D. in physics. There was a period of time in 1965 and 66 when there was a flap of sightings going on. Everybody knew about it. And uh, I read a book called UFOs, Serious Business, uh, and uh, thought, well, that was pretty interesting. It seemed reasonably convincing, anyway. Uh, so I read a few, uh, a couple other books, and I also attended a lecture, probably, which was the key thing in uh, making my life different from everybody else, I suppose. I went and attended a lecture by two guys from the National Investigating Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, that used to exist was the, in the 1960s. It was the largest civilian investigating group in the United States. And uh, they had an office in uh, the middle of in Washington, D.C., near a place called DuPont Circle. Mm -hmm. Well, they came, two guys came and gave a lecture. <clears throat> I don't remember much about their lecture. In fact, I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> the thing that stuck in my mind was they said, we need help volunteer help to do things like uh, answer letters and open mail and stuff like that. Well, I figured um, they said they had about 10,000 cases on files, in files uh, at the office. So I thought, well, if anybody knows what's going on, they probably do. <clears throat> Some weeks, I don't know how long it took me, several weeks after I heard this lecture, I decided to go down and see, see the big office. Well, I assumed it was big. After all, NICAP was mentioned in books. People knew about it all over the world. Yeah. So uh, I went down to DuPont Circle and then out to New Hampshire Avenue, where it used to be, 1536 New Hampshire Avenue, I think it was, and uh, expecting to see a big office building with a big room filled with secretaries and scientists running around doing all sorts of things. <laughs> I just sort of had a nebulous idea of a, a big organization. So I come upon this uh, row house, one segment of a row house with a door open that didn't even have an outer door on hinges, just an opening in the wall. And I walk up the stairs to go to the second floor, and there's a, a, a an incandescent light bulb at the top of the stairs lighting my way uh, with a chain on it to pull if you wanted light. <clears throat> and uh, I open the door to the office, and I come into this small room, 
packed from ceiling, floor to ceiling with books and boxes and papers and all sorts of stuff. And a, a sort of a little broken down lady secretary who was running the whole show. <laughs> Whatever happened to all the secretaries running around with the scientists and the music and the instruments for testing and photographic analysis and all that stuff? Well, it wasn't at NICAP. <laughs> what I saw was a mere ghost or shadow of, of its former self. By the time I got there, Major Kehoe, who had uh, essentially been running this organization for about, well, 10 years by the time I got there, his office was there, his desk was there, piles of junk, but nobody, he hadn't been there for a long time. The other main character of NICAP was Richard Hall and then uh, and, uh, Don Berliner, and they weren't around either. Uh, NICAP had uh, basically was on its way to collapse at that point. So anyway, I went there willing to do some work in exchange for being allowed to look through files. And uh, I got to know this lady secretary, Isabel Davis, quite well. Uh, she turned out to be a very intelligent uh, person able to handle um, this this whole operation herself, practically. But she did need help with the volume of mail that was coming in. Yeah. And so uh, I went there a number of times. I don't remember how often, every week, every other week, whatever, for, for a few hours, and did uh, stuff. Of course, I had no background on the subject other than what I had read, but because I, had, I was studying physics, she thought I knew something. <laughs> she asked me to uh, put together a one-page fact sheet on UFOs, one page, one sheet of paper on one side, and she typed, she would type whatever I wrote in tiny print. That, that was, the reason for that was so you could just take a single sheet of paper, fold it, and triple fold it, and stick it in an envelope and mail it back to somebody who writes a letter saying, please send me everything you've got on UFOs, <laughs> to which the correct answer is send a truck. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> anyway... Several years later, when we were clearing out the office, as NICAP was uh, shrinking and changing, uh, the, the management was changing, uh, I actually found one of my, uh, a copy of uh, this document that I had written. Cause, uh, so she had, in fact, typed it up and, uh, and mailed it out to people. That's great. But anyway, because I joined, uh, because I was going to the office, I learned about the NICAP local subcommittee. NICAP worked, unlike MUFON, that has state directors and county directors and field investigators and all that sort of stuff. Uh, NICAP had subcommittees that, in various areas throughout the United States which uh, did their investigative work. And uh, so I joined the local Washington, D.C. subcommittee and got to go on some investigations with people who had done it before. And the first one that I went on involved some lady who claimed she saw green lights going over her car. She was driving along a road. <coughs> um, just that's just outside the Beltway in Washington D.C. Mm -hmm. Outside of Washington D.C. Actually, it's in Maryland. And uh, so we went there, visited her house. It turned out to be a nice house. She was a teacher. Her husband was an accountant. Didn't sound like these people were likely to be hoaxing anything. And we got in her car and we rode along the same road she went. There certainly was no reason for green lights to be passing over that road. So I was. A hung jury. We didn't know, you know, yeah. what do you make of a situation like that? Doesn't seem to be a hoax. Doesn't seem to be a misidentification. She saw this happen two or three times, she said. We just didn't know what it was that was passing over the road. Then I did a couple of other cases as a result of NICAP. Information that came to NICAP, information usually got to the investigative groups days, weeks, months, or even years after they happened. Yeah. But we were fortunate to learn a story 
couple of members of the group had a friend down in uh, Richmond, Virginia, a postman, who had heard from somebody else, who had heard from uh, the witness uh, in uh, Mount Jackson, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley, about a sighting. In other words, the information about this sighting went around the went around the mill before we got to it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then we found out who it was, contacted the person. I went there and investigated. That turned out to be a very interesting case of a, a man who uh, was driving home after work. He was an elected official of, uh, in a county in, a, in the Shenandoah Valley near Mount Jackson, Virginia. That's where he lives in Mount Jackson. Mm-hmm. And as he was driving to Mount Jackson from a place about 20 miles north, he saw a, a black spot. In a, this was in the springtime, uh, I think it was 1970. Two or three, I forget the exact date. He was driving along, and he had a 12 mile, uh, 10 or 20 mile, 10, 10 mile or something like trip home, and um, he noticed this dark spot up above a mountain in a clear sky uh, in the springtime, clear blue sky, no clouds. And he sees this thing that appears to be over the mountain top, the peak of a mountain. And he's, as he drives along, it doesn't seem to be moving. And he getting, he's getting closer and closer to it. Finally, he got to his house. And it was still there, but now instead of looking at it from a long distance, he was looking at it from maybe a couple of miles away, just looking upwards towards the top of this mountain. And then he got binoculars and looked at it, and he called his family out to look at it. The thing was there, and he drew he drew a picture of it that looked like a rocket with some sort of exhaust coming out, one at the bottom end, but it wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> so that turned out to be a pretty interesting case, and I, in fact, wrote it up and sent it into science magazine as an article on UFOs uh, after science had done an article disparaging the whole subject. <laughs> <laughs> that must have gone um, well. Of course, my article, my article didn't get very far. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, thinking of post, I'm thinking of posting it on my website since it was the first thing that I wrote. And uh, it's still a pretty good case. It wasn't really until 1973 that I really started to get into it in, in major depth. Okay. You may recall in 1973, well, the history of the subject it started in 1947. The Air Force got involved right off the bat and went along doing things, uh, investigating sightings without telling any, uh, telling uh, the general public about the cases that uh, couldn't be explained. They only publicized the ones that could be explained. Yeah. Uh, it's a high a simplification and so on. But anyway, in 1952, there was a major flap of sightings, including over the Capitol. Uh, which uh, and which general in charge of Air Force intelligence, uh, General Sanford, basically said everything was, as far as he was concerned, it was all a result of natural phenomena. The press ran with that, and that sort of set, established the tradition that there was nothing to UFOs. It was all misidentifications, hoaxes, and delusions, mostly misidentifications by people who didn't know what they were looking at. And um, and then in, in the middle 1960s. Uh, you had a flap of sightings in the Midwest, 65 and 66, in particular cases in Hill, Hillsdale, Michigan, uh, in 1966, where uh, Gerald Ford was the minority leader of the House. It was in his district. He lent his uh, support to uh, an order from Congress for the Air Force to support an independent investigation, which turned out to be the so-called Condon Report study. And that took place between 1967 and 1969, roughly. Yeah. For about $500,000, they wrote a report that has a lot of extraneous stuff in it 
uh, tackled about 90 cases, I think, and left about one-third of them unexplained. I was aware of all that. About the time that in 1965 and 66, as the Cunningham Report was going on, it became legitimate to talk about the subject without having a bag over your head. <laughs> and uh, that's why I went down to uh, this lecture at NICAP, because UFOs were in the news. As I said, I had read a, read a book, UFOs, Serious Business, and uh, um, had read a couple other books as well. So anyway, in 1969, the Conway Report was published and basically said, well, we looked real hard and there's nothing to it. That was Condon's opinion. And there'd be no reason for a continued investigation and the Air Force should get out of the business. So the Air Force closed Project Blue Book at the end of 1969. And uh, at that point, it looked like UFOs had gone away forever. Uh, there had been a flap of sightings in 65 and 66. And after that, the number of sightings per year sort of dropped. Those of us keeping track of sighting reports, for example, like NICAP, continued publishing the UFO investigator that they published containing UFO reports. But you only knew about UFO reports if you were one of the members of a UFO group that was collecting them. Yeah. Unlike the 65 to 66 time frame with a flap where UFO reports were published in the newspapers, nothing was being published in 69, 70, 71, and 72. As I said, people with their ear to the ground knew that there were things going on, but it wasn't making it into the general public. Then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose in the fall of 1973. Uh, I don't know if you were around at that point. Oh, no. I was <laughs> still gleaming my daddy's eye then. Uh -huh. Well, in 1973, in, the, in August, late August of 1973, all of a sudden, police reports were coming in, in the Carolinas and so on. And then... Um, this wave of sightings sort of moved its way westward and northward through the United States. And uh, there are a couple of famous cases that came out of that. One of them was the Hickson Parker, Pascagoula, Mississippi abduction. These two men were fishing on the Pascagoula River, claimed that an object settled down behind them. Creatures came out, floated them into the object, examined them, and floated them back onto the dock where they were fishing and uh, took off. And um, the sheriff put them in a room with a tape recorder, assuming that they would be saying things like, well, we've got them now. <laughs> uh, give, give away give away their uh, their secrets of how trying try to create a UFO hoax. Instead, they simply talked about uh, whether or not they would be believed and uh, what are they going to do now having had all this thing happen. Yeah. Well, anyway, there was another case also, uh, a military helicopter case, uh, known as the Coin Helicopter Case. But the name, the name of the guy who was the uh, in charge of the helicopter, uh, eight uh, Army uh, medical people who had just gone for their medical examinations uh, were flying in a helicopter over uh, Central Ohio, and um, as they approached Mansfield, Ohio, saw some bright object off in the distance that suddenly came close to them, and appeared to uh, hover over them, and the uh, pilot. To avoid this object, put the uh, helicopter into a dive. He saw this thing hovering up above them, and suddenly it left. And when it left, he looked at his altitude, and he was actually up higher than he had been when he started. So that scene apparently was witnessed from the ground. That was a couple of major cases. And uh, because of this big flap, it was, became apparent that UFOs hadn't gone away. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So when... And, oh, go ahead. Yeah. It was in the news. These were all cases in the newspapers. The newspapers couldn't avoid it at that point. 
that's what gave me the incentive to try to write an article for Science Magazine that would have been, if they had t accepted it, it would have been published within sometime in 1974. Because I had already done this case investigation from a 71 or 72 case, uh, the Mount Jackson, Virginia case I mentioned, uh, the guy seeing the thing hurrying over a mountain. I wrote up, wrote up a paper and sent it into Science Magazine, and they said, uh, thanks, but uh, we got other things we can publish. Uh, you should send it somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I published it in the uh, highly truncated version in the UFO Investigator by NICAP. But it was at that point that I got seriously interested and started doing statistical analysis of uh, a document known as Project Blue Book Special Report Number 14, and uh, I uh, analyzed the uh, Gemini 11 photo, ca photo case that was reported in the uh, Conant study. It was a Gemini 11 spacecraft in September 1966 that saw some object going past in front of them. And various other cases that led on to uh, the beginning of my investigation of the McMinnville photograph case from 1950, the, probably the most famous photographs in, uh, in UFO history because they're so clear, taken by a farmer and his yeah. wife. <clears throat> and then I got into some other cases, and then the New Zealand sightings came along that uh, were famous at the time. Oh, yeah. New Zealand sightings of 1978, which followed uh, the uh, disappearance of uh, pilot Volendich in uh, Australia, which led to the New Zealand sightings. And after that, in the 1980s, um, well, also in the late 70s, I was one of the first people to uh, make use of the Freedom of Information Act. And I got a bunch of stuff from the FBI which was the core of the book that I wrote, UFO FBI Connection, yeah. that you mentioned earlier. And so things took off from there, you might say. Uh, yeah, the rest is history, as you might say. The rest is history. So, okay, so let's go. <laughs> you've covered a lot here uh, already, and, and I kind of want to go back and sort of just sort of get a little into the sociology of this. It sounds like when you first got involved here with NICAP, it was sort of on the wane and then, Ufology, I, I like to, well, I don't like to think of it as this, but I, I feel that, you know, sort of like the late 60s, early 70s, right about when you first got involved, was sort of really when Ufology took a number of big hits with the Condon Report and Blue Book closes, James McDonald dies, NICAP starts sort of swirling down the drain. I guess my question for you is, you're, you're sort of just getting into it then. What was the mood like around Ufology? What were people, you know, thinking? Uh, from what I understand, a lot of the, Hardcore serious scientists were starting to bail on the field at that point because it was sort of, uh, you know, especially when the Condon report came out. Uh, you know, it seems like a, it was quite an exodus from ufology as far as the serious scientists were concerned. So, what was the mood like? That's really what I'm interested in here. Well, I wasn't plugged in as well as uh, uh, people who had been in ICAP for a period of time. Yeah. But there's no doubt that the uh, the Condon report was a, a major blow, and even though NICAP wrote a rebuttal to it. The rebuttal never gets the uh, publicity <laughs> yeah. or the attention that the original does. And, of course, the original was an official Air Force publication, and Condon had said he wasn't going to do this whole thing if it wouldn't be reviewed by, the, reviewed by the national, without a review from the National Academy of Sciences. And so the National Academy of Sciences reviewed this and said it was a good document. American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics set up a little UFO subgroup acting totally independent on their own, reviewed the Conan Report and said uh, this obvious Conan Report, re the implication of the Conan, the results of the Conan Report is that there ought to be a continued study, not stopping the study. Yeah. They pointed out that leaving one-third, about one-third of the cases unexplained 
uh, is, is not a good way of arguing that there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And they had some cases. If you re actually read the condom study, the case studies, you find some cases where they basically almost come right out and say, yeah, well, a photographic case, the McMinnville case, the reason I got interested in it was because uh, the analyst said that uh, everything investigated seemed to be consistent with the idea that an extraordinary flying object had passed within the sight of two witnesses. In other words, he was endorsing the case. A Condon penned that particular case by pulling a bait and switch. Bill Hardman, who had done the analysis, made use of a uh, technique known as photometry, which is essentially the study of relative brightnesses of things out there in a field. If you're going to take a photograph, there'd be bright things and dim things and so on. A photometer would tell you how much brightness there is. Okay, yeah. Photometry is measuring brightness. Then, if you read the Condon's, if you read Condon's summary of the uh, report, which is right in the front of it, of course, you see that he talked to another photo, photo analyst uh, who analyzed, who looked at the at the McMinnville photos and said they were not sufficiently accurate for worthwhile photogrammetry. Now, photogrammetry is a study of angles and directions, lengths and sizes, and so on. It has nothing to do with the brightness. Yeah, you can have something that's dim or bright. And have it be a certain size, or you could have uh, one brightness for some, saying the same brightness for two different things of different in different directions or something. Direction and brightness are independent quantities. So Condon publicized uh, this uh, photogrammetrist's claim that it wasn't worthwhile for photogrammetry, but Hartman had used photometry. So, <laughs> Uh, that's why I say con sort of pull the bait and switch type of thing. He talks about something that had nothing to do with the analysis uh, done by uh, uh, Hartman. Anyway, that's one of the most egregious examples of Condon's trying to pull a wool over everybody's eyes. Absolutely. The fact that he never mentioned anything. All he had to do was go to the index and look under unexplained cases, and you'd find about 30 entries. Unfortunately, everybody just seems to read the intro, right? That's yeah. The well, that's that's the point. Uh, yeah. They read they read the first few pages where Condon said he didn't think that they had spent a lot of time and hadn't found anything, and he didn't think it would be worthwhile for studies to continue, and he recommended the Air Force get out of it. That was in the first page or two, and then there's a big long summary of the uh, project, and, and Condon wrote the history, the history section of the uh, history of UFO sightings and so on. But anyway, yes, as far as the overall picture of the ufology is concerned, that was a big blow up to that point. Uh, and, not, and in fact, the big lead up was in the 50, 65 to 66 time frame, you had these sightings, which caused Congress to direct the Air Force to hold an independent study. And it would be obvious that that would only happen if you had cases that couldn't be explained or didn't, didn't seem to be explainable, at least. If you could explain all the cases and everybody accepted the explanations, then there would be no UFO subject. And you can make that argument going all the way back into 1947, when this whole thing began. If you could explain the first publicized sighting, that of Kenneth Arnold on June 24, 1947, or all the sightings that occurred after that, several thousand of them that have been picked up in, news, in local papers throughout the United States and throughout the world, if you could analyze, if you could explain, convincingly explain them all, then nobody would have paid any attention to this subject. Yeah. Now, uh, oh, go ahead. It's, the, it's the ones that uh, you can't explain that keep this subject open. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why we were still still interested in this whole thing. Now, when you first got into it, did you have an opinion 
on what these UFOs were, or were you just curious about it, and how has your opinion changed over the years? I mean, you've been looking at this thing for 40 years. I mean, uh, has it stayed the same? Has it changed? Has it evolved? You know, uh, fill us in. Well, I guess you might say I've been a nuts and bolts man all along. Mm-hmm. I realize there are variations on that, but it's all, it's long been my opinion that if one goes flying by and you throw a stone at it, you're going to hear it go boing. <laughs> And in fact, there are cases that are like that where uh, there was one case in the 50s, middle 50s, I think it was, where a hunter saw was out, a guy was out hunting in the woods and he sees one of these coming along and he shot at it and he heard the bullet go careening off. Uh, that sounds pretty solid to me. Now, they nevertheless appear to be able to do things that we wouldn't be able to do with solids <laughs> or liquids or gases for that matter. Yeah. But I had sort of gone along with the NICAP, the NICAP point of view. Uh, which was that uh, these, this was a nuts and bolts type of craft. NICAP, you might say for political reasons, tended to ignore cases that involved creatures yeah. or contact of any sort. Yeah, that was APRO territory, right? Yeah, APRO, that was APRO territory. NICAP stuck with the most believable cases available. And, of course, Kehoe was a primary source of... Uh, information for NICAP because of his connections going back into his first uh, book in 1950. And then he'd written several books by the time NICAP began in 1957. And Kehoe was getting information from pilots and so on on the inside. So what he was getting was pretty credible information. Yeah. And of course you had, uh, also in the mix, we have uh, Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, that came out in 1955. When I got interested in the subject in 1966 or 67, I recall that I had read in high school a book, and I couldn't remember very much about it, but I went rummaged through my old books and found Ruppelt's book that I had read in 1956 or 57, and Ruppelt's book was written by a guy who was the first director of Project Blue Book. And... uh, he cites a lot of cases. He cites the history of the, what the Air Force did and so on. It's still an important book to read if you're interested in the early history because the mere fact that he wrote it is part of the early history and its impact on people who, read, who have studied the subject since. Even Arthur C. Clarke gave uh, Ruppel high, high grades for his book. Anyway, at the end of Ruppel's book, you get the impression he's sitting on the fence is it is it real and extraterrestrial or not real? And you you get the impression all it takes is a feather to knock him over onto the real extraterrestrial side. <laughs> and uh, that was sort of my opinion too. If these things were real, they were nuts and bolts technology. Yeah. And uh, I still stick with that. But I realize that there's uh, there's a a, a mental <laughs> a mental aspect too which I think was codified in 1981 uh, or whatever it was with the publication of Missing Time. Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. The early 1980s were sort of like a paradigm shift in the subject. Yeah. Because two things happened that had been sort of on the periphery of, of acceptability. From 1947 onwards, you had uh, sightings of all sorts and landings and landing traces and photographs and radar detections and all that sort of stuff. It was always something that was there for a while and then gone, not something that you could grab onto and say, here's a piece of it. Also, in most cases, uh, you had uh, the 
the encounters similar to what Heineck talked about, close encounters. You see uh, lights off in the distance, daylight disc type of sighting, something that might be within a few, maybe a mile or less of you, and you can see some shape to it. And then encounters of various types, like uh, seeing something land and create some mark, or seeing a creature. That was about it. Yeah. There were a few outlier cases. You had the uh, uh, Villas Boas case from uh, Brazil, mm-hmm. uh, written about by uh, uh, Carl Lorenzen, uh, in which he claims he was out in the far, out in the field on his tractor when his craft lands, and uh, he's taken into the craft and uh, has relations with a uh, semi semi pretty, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> a very unusual female alien. And when he asks what's going to happen now. She points upwards, the implication being that she's going to have have his child somewhere out there. Yeah. Now, Phyllis Boas died uh, 10, 15 years ago. He, he, be, he was not a stupid kid farmer. He ended up being a lawyer. Oh, wow. <laughs> so anyway, there was that case that nobody knew what to, t- to do or say about. And, of course, the Hill case. Yeah. Betty and Barney Hill uh, that was investigated by some NICAP people, and yet they didn't know what to do with it. Uh, they couldn't really believe it. Then in the 70s, you had um, some other people writing about uh, what would be what are now called uh, abduction cases. In the 50s, you had the contactees. And here's the reason why NICAP stuck to the nuts and bolts stuff. They didn't, NICAP didn't want to sound ridiculous. You had Kehoe as a pilot and getting information from pilots. And they don't want to sound ridiculous. But you had uh, Adamski and others in the... Uh, 1950s, claiming that the space scrub brothers were coming to save us and we should uh, all ban the bomb and uh, believe in Chevrolet and, mother and apple pie. Yeah. And uh, everything would be sweetness and light. There were four or five people who traveled around the country and even around the world who were in this con- what are known as contactee situation. Mm-hmm. And so Kehoe and to a large extent, APRO and other organizations wanted to stay away from that as much as they could because it didn't help their credibility. Yeah, yeah. But then in the 1970s, you had this situation occurring where there were people who said, well, we were taken on board, but they they were not going out and publicizing that. You only found out by indirect means, typically. Yeah. Uh, so many cases by direct recollection, but also but the bulk of the cases through hypnosis. By the 1970s, the contactees had sort of faded out, I should say. Yeah. Replaced by abduction. They didn't hold the sway that they had back in the 50s and early 60s. But by the end of the 70s, you had the uh, the nuts and what I would call the nuts and bolts reports. A few more, a few others that were sort of bizarre. But the nuts and bolts reports, I should point out, violated physics in many cases. The implication was you have a solid object up there able to do a right angle turn, uh, which is unphysical if it's a perfect right angle. Um, you have to inf- have infinite forces to stop something that's got mass and then accelerate it in another direction. I had a, not a personal, but a family report that was like that. My, I found out in the late 60s that my grandmother had a sighting probably in 1947, only couldn't absolutely prove that, but only uh, evidence pointed towards it. Yeah. Uh, in Greenfield, Massachusetts, where she was uh, hanging out laundry one day. Now, she to the east of her was a steeply rising small hill. It probably meant that her angle of elevation, she could see it up to the top of the hill, angle of elevation was maybe like 45 or 50 degrees. 
and she kind of sees coming over this hill, heading westward, two round, shiny objects that were zipping along towards the west, and they suddenly made a right-angle turn and headed north. And Grandma wasn't an aerodynamicist or a <laughs> physicist, but she knew that things don't make right-angle turns. So she uh, told her family about it and told her friends until a general anti-UFO reaction set in, at which point her husband told her to shut up. <laughs> oh, man. She never talked about it again, but she had told my mother by that point. So uh, my mother knew about it, and I did get to interview my grandmother before she died about that uh, particular sighting. Now, as a as a classic nuts and bolts guy, what did you think of this explosion of abductions uh, in the mid seventies, and then of well, course the, you know was, they became that, big the in the eighties. That's why I said there was a paradigm shift. Yeah, talk a little bit about that, and especially how you felt about it. I mean, uh, most people know about the paradigm shift. I'm interested, you know, your perspective on it and, and what yeah. you were thinking as it all went down. Well, I didn't know what to think. Um, I was not involved in any cases that had to do with uh, uh, abduction. Mm-hmm. There, there was no, no connection, no, no photographic case that was related to it that was uh, involved abduction at, at that point that I was aware of. I did, did had heard about Bud Hopkins, and I knew something about his investigations of the uh, sightings right uh, in New Jersey, right across the river, almost from where he lived. Yeah. But uh, I really wasn't thinking too much about it, and then. Two things happened as paradigm shift. One was the publication of the Roswell incident. By the time that was published, I was aware that they had uh, located uh, Jesse Marcel and uh, uh, learned about his testimony with regard to the Roswell case. And this was a paradigm shift because up to this point, nobody was seriously considering that the government was covering up hardware. There had been nothing about it. Uh, those of you familiar with the Roswell case will know that it was mentioned very briefly in the newspapers in 1947, in July 8, uh, 1947, and explained as a uh, weather balloon, and that completely shut down the Roswell investigation for 30 years. Yeah. And uh, when the book was published, and all of a sudden people started saying, well, wait a minute, it could be that there's the answer to this question of UFO reality is held by the government, and the government isn't saying anything. Interesting. Okay. That so, was, okay. so that was a new way of looking at things. Then I think it was in 1981, 80 or 81, when Missing Time was published. And uh, you read Missing Time, and here you find all of a sudden that um, uh, Bud Hopkins has made some connections and important things, discoveries like the screen memory idea, mm-hmm. that people uh, would remember something had happened, but they would be what they would remember was not exactly what it, what it happened. There was a screen memory. And, of course, the thing that led to the title of the book, Missing Time, uh, which comes uh, immediately right out of the, uh, the Betty and Bobby Hill case where they were driving from uh, up, up near, in New Hampshire, up near Canada. They were driving home, and they get home. They figure two hours late and can't, imagine, can't figure out what happened to a couple hours' worth of time. There were a number of cases like that, screen memory and the missing time, in his book, I got to talk to some of the witnesses that uh, were the people that he was writing about, and uh, they were impressive people. I mean, they weren't clearly weren't contactees. They didn't really want any publicity. I guess he used uh, pseudonyms for everybody who was in the book. Um, one guy was a lawyer in the Washington D.C. area, and he impressed me by saying uh, his his story was that he was driving to meet some people in a uh, small town in uh, Maryland that was west uh, of uh, Baltimore. 
and he was driving along a road called U.S. Route 40, and uh, he drove out of Baltimore, along heading west along Route 40, gets into a rural area, and he noticed this white light thing moving around in the sky that comes close to his car, I guess. And then the next thing he knows, he's driving along in his car on the same Route 40. He's farther along the trip, and he gets to the gets to the uh, bar or restaurant where he was headed, and his buddies say, what took you so long? You're two hours late, or worse to that effect. <laughs> and he can't figure out what the hell is going on, how to get how to get to be two hours late. Somehow, I forget the details of how, somehow he managed to get in contact with uh, Bud Hopkins and under hypnosis. Uh, it turns out that uh, his recollection under hypnosis was that he's driving along, this, red, this bright light is moving around over his car, all of a sudden, this car drives off the side of the road, off into the grass or something, and uh, stops. This thing comes down onto the ground. Some creatures come out of it, open up the side door of his car, float him out. You know, standard. what we now know is a standard abduction type of stuff. Yeah. Happens. He gets put back in his car, uh, and he's driving along. Suddenly, he's back to consciousness. I think he consciously remembered before hypnosis, he saw this light, and then he sees it again as it's going away from him or something like that. Yeah. And the hypnosis filled in the missing time period. That's what it amounted to. Okay. So uh, He said his evaluation of this whole thing was, he says, I believe in the UFO sighting. There was some bright light moving away and moving around relative to my car. But he says, I don't know if I believe in this abduction stuff that came out under hypnosis, and I'm just not sure of that. Now, for somebody to evaluate his experience, his own experience in that sort of a critical manner, tells me this guy's not a nut. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it's more likely that something like that did happen, whether it's a, all a screen memory for something else or whether things happen exactly as you recalled uh, under hypnosis, I don't know. But that certainly seemed to be a credible ex uh, experience as far as they were concerned. And that's what sort of shifted the, the cases like that, or what shifted the paradigm. But things got really weird, you know, uh, people being transmitted through, through, translated through walls, or open or closed windows and stuff. How is something like this done? I don't know. Is this a, a form of technology? Probably is, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's got any, any technology that's hundreds of years in advance of you is going to appear, appear like magic, uh, uh, says Arthur C. Clarke. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it sounds like you know you're 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 plugging along here, nuts and bolts, and then things explode and sort of give you pause to you know look at this in a whole different sort of way. Is that kind well, of fair? The the Roswell effect, effect of the Roswell case was that gee, we don't understand the real history behind behind UFOs because there's a history associated with the Roswell crash that's independent of the history that we know about Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book, and UFO civilian investigations. Yeah. So that was that paradigm shift in the, uh, in the Roswell case, that there may be hardware after all somewhere. And then again, this other paradigm shift related to, uh, yeah, creatures... <laughs> creatures from outer space may be interacting directly with human beings and doing uh, nasty things. Yeah, you don't sound too excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah in creatures. the 1980s, we started getting crop circles, or I should say agroglyphs. Agroglyph is the uh, correct term. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pictures drawn in agricultural crops. And I bring that up.
because that's added into the initial agroglyphs were quite simple things, but they were an extension of landing traces. Landing traces were typically associated with the craft that made the landing trace. In other words, a person would come upon an object on the ground, see it take off, go over to where it was, find depressed grass, burned grass, impressions in the ground, something like that, right? Yeah. Um, as these things became more complicated, uh, the question was, this is much more than just something landing. So what really is going on? I'm talking about the early agroglyph problem, yeah. uh, conundrum that was in the middle 1980s. This is before, all of a sudden, in 1990 or 91, all of a sudden you had this huge explosion of, fan, of uh, complex diagrams. But up to that point, it was primarily just combinations of circles. Or I, I might also mention animal mutilations. There's another thing that gets thrown into the into the pile here, and that was uh, sort of started in the middle '60s with a horse, uh, as you may even know, and um, became a real problem for people grazing huge herds of cattle out in the, out in the plains uh, in the '70s, and it was a sufficient uh, problem that they even hired a retired FBI guy to investigate and try to find out if there was a uh, religious cult killing cows uh, or something more bizarre than that, or if it was just animals. And in the late 70s, uh, he, uh, he, his report said that it was just animal uh, effects of animals, but that didn't explain things like straight knife-like cuts, uh, loss of blood with no blood on the ground, Stuff like that. Yeah, it just became a huge melting pot. It seems like in the in the 1980s. Now let me sort of uh, go down a different rabbit hole here. Now I know you've sort of suffered the slings and arrows of skeptics and debunkers over the years, notably Phil Class. I guess just talk a little bit about that because it seems like you've had to, you know, defend the subject, defend the phenomenon against the, uh, for lack of a better term, non-believers. I mean, these yeah. are ardent non-believers who <laughs> seems like that's well, their job to not believe. Most of the skeptics, debunkers, whatever, really were uneducated about the subject. Really, most of the people I'd run into, and that apparently goes for the modern day, the skeptics of choice today, for example. Yeah. But Phil was a little different. He actually studied the subject. And um, the history of Phil Class is that he, in the 50s, already was dabbling a little bit in the subject. Uh, he was a he was a writer for Aviation Week. He knew a lot about. Uh, didn't have a PhD or a BS or any degree in science, but he was well read in uh, aeronautics, avionics, and so on. And so he was continually writing columns for Aviation Week. Yeah. And I think it was in the middle 50s that he uh, first proposed that uh, some UFO sightings might be plasma related to plasmas. But he really pushed this subject in the, in the latter 60s. He, remember, recall, I pointed out there was a big flap in 1965 and 66, uh, which uh, resulted ultimately in the Conan Report. Well, about the same time, Phil decided to write his first book called UFOs Identified. Mm -hmm. He has on the cover of that book a picture taken by a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot from an altitude of about 40,000 feet looking downwards into a 
sphere collection of uh, thunderheads, cumulus clouds, and there's this bright, overexposed image, almost football-shaped. It's on my website, uh-huh. analysis of this case on my website. And incidentally, this is one case that Valet um, includes in his compilation of uh, physical evidence cases. So anyway, Phil put this book, one on his uh, on his front page, or on the cover page, the cover leaf, I should say, and uh, talks about it inside the book, of course. And the whole book is his arguments attempting to show that um, the true UFOs, the ones that really can't be explained, the ones that aren't misidentified, are actually plasmas. And uh, plasma is a uh, it's been called the fifth state of matter, but uh, basically means that you separate the electrical charges throughout a volume, and that means it becomes highly conductive and it reflects radio waves and it glows in the atmosphere and so on. Yeah. So anyway, he's claiming that the, the UFO sightings that aren't misidentifications and hoaxes are in fact uh, plasmas, and he he cites that particular case as a example of a gigantic plasma, even though scientists believe that the only plasmas, aside from lightning strokes themselves, the only natural plasmas lying around, uh, uh, say Hellmose fire or something, maybe uh, ball lightning are small. Yeah. Anyway, Phil um, published his book thinking that, ever, that ufologists and everybody would be real happy to just come up with a good argument for how it's all plasmas. And <laughs> instead, it got, instead, it got panned, and in particular, panned by James McDonald. Yeah. And that was the beginning of a real nasty feud between McDonald and uh, and uh, class. Of course, that ended when McDonald committed suicide in '71 for reasons unrelated to UFOs, uh, related to his own family situation. More had nothing to do with the UFO situation. Yeah. Anyway, by the time I got involved, Phil had written a second book called uh, "UFOs Explained," in which he didn't even mention the first book. <laughs> And some of the cases in the in the second book were were from the first book, but uh, like I said, they didn't refer to the first book because the first book had been completely stomped on by uh, McDonald and, and other scientists. Nobody believed that Class had solved the problem. Not even the Psychop guys, the Committee for Scientific Investigation, claims it was paranormal. Wow, that's strange. Let me ask you then. A lot of people speculate that Class was. You know, on the take, that he was working with the government, that he was, you know, tasked to debunk. What do you think of that whole, uh, you know, uh, train of thought? Well, I think, in that sense, he might have been a useful idiot. And he was doing what he thought was right. He was doing what he believed in and probably agreed with what the government wanted him to do. But I don't think he was necessarily being paid by the government to do it. Okay. I remember that my first contact with Funny Phil... <laughs> Funny Phil, I like that. I think, <laughs> and it had to do with the McMinnville photo case. In his book, UFOs Explained, he discussed the McMinnville photo case. Uh, this is coming out after the Conan report. The Conan report study uh, involved uh, this astronomer Bill Hartman, who did a number of photo cases. And Bill Hartman's prime premier case was the McMinnville photo case, in which uh, Bill Hartman has, has said that he couldn't. He couldn't explain the case. He said, "Oh, it would be you couldn't you couldn't positively rule out a hoax." As far as he was concerned, everything investigated, and he actually went and talked to the witnesses. He said everything investigated seemed to show point towards 
an extraordinary flying object having passed within the sight of two witnesses. So this is a premier case in the Conn study. Yeah. If the subject had appealed to scientists, then there should have been a huge reaction to what Harmon wrote. Exactly. I'm sure Harmon expected a huge reaction to what he wrote uh, because he was essentially saying, look, this UFO is real. And uh, it's so the picture is so clear that it's obviously not a, a, a bird or a plane or Superman. It's some circular object, uh, primarily circular anyway, with a pole on the top that was zipping by. So anyway, it attracted my interest. Uh, I was wondering, you know, why, why haven't there been a whole bunch of articles written on this one case? Why hasn't it been reinvestigated? So. Uh, in late, late 73 or 74, as a result of this flap of sightings that happened in 73 that got me re, sort of really interested in the subject, I decided to see what I could do with a con case, with a, uh, a Minbo case. And the first thing I needed, of course, were some good pictures. And I knew that Phil had put them into his book, UFOs Explained. Yeah. And I had read that book. Actually, I gave it a reasonably good review and published the review in NICAP, UFO Investigator. So anyway, I called up Phil to find out how I could get some co copies of the pictures. And I, I don't remember much about the conversation, except he said, I remember, recall him saying the following, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic. And uh, as far as he was concerned, there wasn't any case that couldn't be explained, huh. one way or another. And any case that couldn't be explained was a plasma. <laughs> <laughs> and since it didn't appear that the thing in the McMinnville in the photo case was a plasma, it must be a hoax. But anyway, he was willing to help me with getting prints. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I did get some. I did get some prints from uh, Robert Schaefer, uh, one of the people working with Phil at the time. And uh, well, I learned what it was. I did, did did my homework, you might say, learning how to do the Hartman type of calculation that led to a calculated distance to the object of over a kilometer and therefore a size of over 30 yeah. meters and so on. I learned how to do all that stuff. In the meantime, I was trying to see if I could get the original negatives to work with. And that led me to, uh, well, Phil made a suggestion that I write to or contact the editor of the newspaper that published the pictures. We, well, we knew that, the, that Hartman had found the negatives in 1967 in order to analyze them. He had them, and then he mailed them back to um, the UPI photo people who keep track of all the photos ever taken, I guess. Yeah. And when, we, when I tried to contact them, they didn't have it, didn't know what it was. So Phil suggested I contact the... Uh, uh, editor of the newspaper and see if he knew anything. So I called up a guy named Phil Bladeen, now deceased, but he was uh, the editor, he was the owner of the newspaper, an editor who had been active as early as 1947. In other words, he had been, although he personally had been out of town at the time of the event, uh, and his photo editor had done the story. Mm -hmm. uh, so I called up Phil Bladeen and I say I'm interested in the McMinnville case and I'm trying to do some analysis and I'd like to know if I if, if we know the photographs were used, the original negatives were used by the Conant study and well, they don't know where it is and I wondered if you had any idea where we might look and he says oh yeah they're right here on my desk <laughs> oh wow, this was in 74 I believe when he had found out that the Conant people had returned the, fo the photos he had written to the uh, UPI people and said 
send them to me, and I will return them to their owners. The condo Trents had never been paid for these pictures. It wasn't that anybody owned the pictures but the Trents. So Bladeen got the pictures in 70 or 71 and put them on his desk and never got around to giving them to the Trents. That's why they were still sitting there in 74 when I called. <laughs> oh, wow. So I arranged with Mrs. Trent to allow me to use the pictures, and I used the original negatives. And I, I, I was a bad boy, too. I told her, I'd like to, told her I'd like to keep them for a few weeks for analysis. I actually had them for about 20 years, I guess. <laughs> wow. Now, during this time, when I was doing the analysis of the, of the Trent case, and when I first published, published my first paper on it, uh, Phil was, uh, uh, well, rather silent on the whole thing. But after I published the first paper, in which I duplicated uh, the result that Condon had found in terms of distance, uh, this is a paper published by the Center for UFO Studies. Yeah. Uh, when I completed that paper, that sort of put me on the map because here I had tackled the premier case in the uh, in, in the uh, Condon study, and by by adding some corrections to what had been done before, came up with the same sort of result that the thing was far away. But I also pointed out that um, if you this is this was based on photometry, so if they had been fortunate and chosen certain brightnesses for their object, that it could be close and appear to be far away. Uh, in other words, it could've, could, I couldn't possibly rule, I couldn't rule out the possibility of a hoax, but they'd have to be very lucky. Well, Phil got into big arguments over all sorts of other non-photographic type of stuff in the story. I mean, their story, the story is not 100% consistent, but uh, 100% consistent, you'd expect a hoax anyway. Uh, people remember things differently. Yeah. This is two people who are trying to remember what had happened a week, well, weeks or months later. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is because this is how I got in contact with Phil. Mm-hmm. Where Phil and I really bumped heads was in the New Zealand case. The New Zealand photograph, the New Zealand film case. Yeah. December of 1978, when there was a uh, freighter aircraft with a news crew on board flying along the east coast of the South Island of New Zealand. And seeing lights appearing, they were doing this uh, as a uh, news story initially, just as a amusing news story about previous sightings along that same route. Mm-hmm. This is the middle of the night, and a freighter aircraft flying from Wellington, New Zealand, down to um, Christchurch. Well, I uh, happened to be in the right place at the right time because of uh, my connections with NICAP to be asked to investigate that film. Although when I first saw it on TV, I thought, here, it was 12,000 miles away from me on the other side of the earth. I figured somebody thousands of miles away might get a chance to look at it, but I wasn't going to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. That was on, uh, it was first shown on, um, I think, a Monday night in uh, January of uh, 1979. And, uh, and I sort of looked at it and said, yeah, well, what the hell? It's nothing for me to worry about. And uh, about four days later, I got a call from the guy who was the director of NICAP at the time, Jack Acuff, and he said, how do you like to see the New Zealand film? They're oh, looking wow. at here. <laughs> oh, wow. That took me about four microseconds to say, oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and less than a week after it was taken, I had it at my house, and I was uh, using the projector to run the 16-millimeter color movie that had been sold at $50,000 a shot. Uh, to a number of news organizations around the, around the world as a uh, documentary. Hmm. 
So anyway, I analyzed that film, concluded uh, that there were a lot of UFO things that actually happened. About a year later, in 1980, I got my first letter, uh, first letter from Phil about this particular case. <laughs> and uh, he was asking about some of the radar and stuff that I recall in the first letter. It was one of those things where you, if I had known what was going to happen, I'm not sure I would have bothered to even answer his first letter. <laughs> Several years and maybe 1,500 pages single-spaced of typing letter. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know. It's like three-and-a-half, three-inch ring binder notebooks. We went over every fine detail. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I will smash your face into a, into a jelly! Now, I should say that when you do a UFO investigation, you don't, you never know what you're going to get into. In the McMinnville photograph case, one of the things I wanted to know about was the size, the diameter of the wires that go over the, that appear at the top of the picture. Yeah. Well, how do you figure that out? Uh, I wanted to figure out the size. I wanted to know what the size of the wires was so I could use the photometric, photogrammetric method of uh, calculating the distance of the camera from the wires. So I had to make a study of those wires. I had to look up an old electronics book and oh, um, so you find out what the diameter of uh, the old-fashioned type of insulation on a uh, oh, 14 gauge or something like that copper wire. Yeah, this is a serious <laughs> business. Yeah, wow. <laughs> you know, who would think that this isn't related to UFOs? Exactly. Um, there, there were numerous other aspects that you get into, and in the New Zealand case, there are all sorts of things that, because. The New Zealand case, the New Zealand sightings that I was investigated uh, took place late at night in uh, the early morning of December 31st, 1978. They involved uh, five, six witnesses. Let's see, what am I saying? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, six witnesses. Well, four different witnesses. And there were actually pilot, co-pilot, and two reporters that were involved as eyeball witnesses. And then there was a Wellington Air Traffic Control Center guy watching the screen on the, ra on the radar and the radar tape, which allowed us to reconstruct this whole trip. And then there was a tape recording made on the plane by the uh, uh, reporter who happened to be on the plane, as I said, trying to do a little story on previous sightings. Yeah. And he got caught in the middle of something that changed his life. At any rate, um, all sorts of aspects of this came in, the radar, and cameraman with a 16-millimeter color movie that I had to analyze, thousands of frames of information, and of course, just plain interviewing uh, the witnesses. Uh, I actually flew to New Zealand and Australia to interview all the witnesses nice. myself. So anyway, I had written a paper based on this that uh, said essentially that uh, there was something real there, and then Phil contacted me about a year later and started asking questions about the technical details. And over the next, I was seven, that was 98, over the next two years roughly, we probably exchanged something like 1,500 or more pages, single-spaced, of, of uh, text. Questions by him, questions, answers by me, questions by him, answers by me. Sometimes I asked him questions and he gave answers. It was a. It really was a very finely ground up case, you might say. By the time we got finished with it, indeed, yeah. And he wrote about it in his book, his third book, 
uh, UFO is the Public Deceived, which is aptly named because he deceived the public <laughs> in his book. And in particular, in the New Zealand case, there was one section of this film which shows a flashing light that flashes from white, large white images to small, dim, orange and red images. Uh, the orange and red images, that's a little triangle with an orange dot up above two red dots that make a, a triangle shape. And uh, this, the white images have no trace of red in them, but they're much bigger. They're, they're like overexposed white images. And this, those are 30 cycles. The counterman got 30 cycles, I think it was, uh, and about 30, uh, one cycle per second starting. Well, the camera was running at 10 frames a second, and it took about 10 frames to complete a cycle from maximum brilliance to minimum brilliance and back to maximum again. This is just one part of the New Zealand sighting case, but it's the most, perhaps the most interesting part from the point of view of uh, well, Phil's handling of it. Phil wrote in his book that um, the images are hot dog shaped, that is, curved, often, often bent curves, and of course the, the cameraman was holding the camera on his shoulder on a moving airplane. Yeah. And uh, so naturally the image of some light way out there in space, which by the way apparently was picked up by Wellington radar, and seen by the pilot and co-pilot and a reporter. This this light out there was bouncing around in the in the film, and so you see it moving around in the film. And when you when you uh, have an exposure time, and some object moving during the exposure time, it leaves a trail. Yeah. It elongates the image. So you've got these various elongated images, various lengths and various shapes, and so on. And Phil decided that. Oh, he, he, Phil knew one thing that I had told him, which was, on the top of the airplane, there was a red rotating beacon. This is a typical thing for an aircraft to have. Yeah. And the beacon rotates at one cycle per second. Once every second, you get a red shot, a, red, a shot of red in your eye, you might say. Mm -hmm. um, and that was essentially the same rate that we were getting for this flashing light that was changing from white to red, white, bright white to dim red orange. Well, Phil conceived of a method whereby the cameraman could stand inside the cockpit and film the light on top of the aircraft. Now, he had already filmed the light on top of the aircraft before the airplane even took off. He was standing on the tarmac with his camera and running his camera in, he said, by taking film of the, of the airplane before it even took off. And his film shows the red rotating beacon on the top, and when the red rotating beacon is pointed right at the camera, the image is a yellow dot in the center, a yellow disc in the center with a red fringe around the outside. The red fringe around the outside tells you there's red light. When the light is dim, pointing in the other direction, then you just get a uh, dim red image. So anyway, Phil's claim was that light from this red beacon was bouncing off the rotating propellers and into the camera lens, into the cameraman's lens. That would mean that the cameraman was not looking in the direction ahead of the airplane where this thing was uh, spotted. But he had to be looking sideways, uh, right in front of the co-pilot, really, to be able to be pointing his camera towards the uh, towards the propeller. Yeah. So Phil invents this scenario where the cameraman is looking to the right, looking at the propeller, filming the propeller, filming the red light reflected off the propeller. And Phil argues that the uh, craziness of the image shapes and so on was due to the fact that there was no synchronization between the propellers and the frame rate of the camera. If you read his article, and you know nothing about the case at all except what he wrote, this may sound plausible as an explanation for this flashing light. But the reader doesn't know is that I proved to Phil 
that it was physically impossible, optically physically impossible for that to be true. And the clue was in these pictures that the uh, cameraman took before the plane even took off. Remember I said that the flashing light images run from very bright, large, white, overexposed with no red fringe at all, just a white image, yeah. to a dim triangle of red and orange. The big white images by themselves are just plain white, overexposed, maybe with a trace of orange or, or, or yellow, but there isn't any red. And so the cameraman could not have been filming the red beacon, even reflected off the propellers, because if he had been, the, the exposed images, overexposed images would have had red around them on the outside. So even though you explained all this to him, he just went ahead with his own sort of... Absolutely. Interesting. I mean, that was just Phil doing his uh, dyed-in-the-wool skeptic. Yeah. Now you <laughs> Maybe he didn't believe what I told him, but I, you know, I was honest with him. And in terms of all my analysis that I did for him, there are numerous cases where he would propose an explanation for some particular part of the sighting. And that would mean that I would have to check out his explanation. <laughs> and see whether it made any sense or not. And this is probably, has to be one of the longest correspondences, certainly one of the longest correspondences on a UFO case, maybe one of the longest correspondences in history on some particular uh, complex yeah. of uh, rare phenomena, shall we say. Sounds like a the real fact cat that he, The thing. fact that he was willing to put that into his book, even though I had told him that it was wrong, the physics matter, and there's absolutely no way that the, he could have gotten a white overexposed image by filming red light reflected off the propeller. Phil went ahead and published it anyway. That's why I say he, his book is aptly named UFOs, the Public Deceived. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Now, you've talked about a lot of your research here into the photos and everything. Now, what do you think of this whole, the way things have changed now? We're, we're in the digital age, and it seems like any photos of UFOs always now have this you know, shadow of suspicion cast over them because the ability to tinker with photos is so easy for, you know, an armchair hoaxer or, you know, maniac or skeptic or whatever. Yeah, but this has always been true. A photo a UFO does not make. You've got to have the background. Now, it is possible for a dedicated hoaxer to create a context for the photograph. Uh, that is a story behind it. Yeah which makes sense in terms of the photograph, and therefore you hoax the whole thing. In the McMinnville case, for example, you have the testimony of the witnesses taken several different times by different people over the years. And the fact that I personally talked to Mrs. Trent, a female witness, um, two dozen times over a year, over a couple of years, uh, and uh, she was consistent with me. Uh, you have to have the background. I could not prove that the Trent photo was real just by the photo itself. I would have to admit that they could have been lucky and hoaxed it. For example, you have overhead wires, that is wires that appear at the top of the picture. If they were suspending the model from the wires, then they were stupid to show the wires. But anyway, the trends weren't that smart. So um, let's suppose that there was a string hanging this uh, uh, model from the wire. It had to be thin enough so that you could, strong enough to hold the model, but thin enough so it wouldn't show up on the uh, on the film. Yeah. There has, of course, been numerous examinations of the original negatives looking for that incriminating thread. No one has found it. 
that doesn't mean that there's nothing there. If they picked a thread of a, with the same color as the background color, there'd be no contrast between the thread and the background sky, and there'd be no way you could see it. You only see things because of contrast. As a matter of fact, all of life is just contrast. If everything were the same, boy, would it be boring. That's deep. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so I... anyway, the point, the point I'm making is that it's true that it's easy to come up with fake photographs, but you've also got to fake a story and make it stick. And it has to stick under... Well, another thing is, the closer you get to having a, quote, real UFO being uh, coming out of a particular case, look at it like this. You begin the investigation to find out if something is real. You're taking a series of steps towards a conclusion, right? Yeah. Imagine you're walking up a hill. Mm-hmm. This hill gets steeper and steeper as you walk. So you go along a certain way and you've, things seem to be convincing so far and then you take another step, uh, ask another question about the case and uh, it's kind of hard to generalize because each case is different. But the closer you get towards a conclusion of, of anomalous, the harder it is to take the next step. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And you can never actually get to the top of the mountain because well, you can't you really... Well, you could in principle get there. There might be some case that is so good that no matter how you beat on it, it doesn't fall apart. That's true, I suppose. Yeah, that's <laughs> that, true. That is the, uh, let's say the holy grail of ufology, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. You, so can, we're you still look at all sorts of cases and ask, do they meet that criterion? One of them, which is going to be in Leslie Keene's new book, UFOs, the government, and whatever, I forget it, the total title. I suppose you're aware it's yes. coming. Oh, yeah. The um, JA, JAL 1628, the Alaskan yeah. jumbo jet 747 that flew over Alaska, over, uh, well, heading southward, southwestward over Alaska, and had, uh, uh, had the, the crew, the crew had sightings as, uh, as they went along. And, I wrote the what is the largest detailed, most detailed analysis of that whole case. It's been made publicized recently by in, in the last ten years by John Callahan, who was in charge of the investigation, the FAA investigation, which lasted a day or two, I guess. I was able to do a complete analysis of that because I was given documentation and allowed me to reconstruct the airplane track and listen to the uh, audio tape and reconstruct the. Uh, I published the whole thing in uh, the IUR in 1980. In that particular case, and Phil figures into this as well, uh, that particular case essentially began with two objects uh, appearing right in front of the jumbo jet as they flew along. The pilot said he felt heat on his face. There seemed to be collections of flashing lights or, or exhaust ports or something like that on two objects that the first appeared one up above the other, if I recall correctly, and stayed that way for a couple of minutes, traveling, and they just appeared in front of the airplane that was doing 600 and some miles an hour. Yeah. And uh, then they suddenly reoriented to be side by side, and these objects are rather complex. The, the pictures that the uh, pilot drew of these objects is a rather complex collection of... Uh, what he thought might be exhaust ports or something like that, but he wasn't really sure. And things developed as they, as he went along his track. He's heading from uh, the northeastern corner of Alaska down towards uh, Anchorage, or towards Fairbanks, and then down south to, Atlanta, to Anchorage. 
as things develop as they went along, these objects first appear one above the other for a couple of minutes and then one side by side for maybe 10 minutes and then they suddenly disappeared. And the pilot looked around and he saw off to the left, saw a glow. He turned on his airplane radar, got a big radar target reflection from that direction. Then it sort of drops back and drops back and he's how he can't, he's the only person who now can see anything. And he looks, as he approaches Fairbanks, he looks behind to the left out his pilot window, he's looking to the left. And he sees what he calls a silhouette of a gigantic spaceship. Oh boy! Uh, that's all. His, that's that's all history of this particular case. Absolutely, yeah, it's very well documented. Um, and you can see again, this is something you can read on my website. Uh, complete my complete report on it, which is tons more complete than anything the FAA did. <laughs> yeah, that's not so. Now that happened in uh, November of 1986. The FAA said they were going to investigate starting early January of 1987. In March of 1987, March 5th of 1987, they presented their final report on the case. The final report, well, I should jump back a little bit before. During the sighting itself, ground radar was involved. Ground radar, Anchorage Air Force Bay, Anchorage, Alaska, yeah. uh, and Elmendorf Air Force Base, which is also at Anchorage. Uh, near Anchorage, Alaska. This was either one radar being operated by two people or two separate radars. I think it's one radar that's got two uh, two two operators. In any case, um, there was at least one point where um, the Ellendorf Air Force Base operator thought that the plane had some object behind it, and uh, the uh, Air Route Traffic Control Center guy told the airplane about this radar contact. And so when the Japanese crew finally got to um, uh, Tokyo, and uh, over the, that was in November, and over the next few weeks they told their buddies that uh, this had happened and, and radar had been involved. And that story got back to uh, got to a uh, American reporter in Japan, and he called up Anchorage and asked if that happened. And Anchorage public information officer said yes, it did happen. And so he wrote a story about it, and the uh, excrement started to fly, and that's when it hit the fan. <laughs> and the FAA said, well, we better investigate because radar was involved. So now three months later in March, they say, well, it was all all a radar mistake, and they didn't say a thing about the visible sightings. The visual sightings were completely ignored by the FAA. Well, now, several weeks earlier, PSYCOP, Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, came up with their solution. Their solution was, of course, based on what Phil Class had said, and he based his analysis totally on the uh, transcript of the, uh, of the tape without knowing exactly where the airplane was flying. My investigation, I determined exactly how the airplane was flying, minute by minute, so I knew which direction the airplane was looking. But Phil didn't know which direction the airplane was looking. And so PSYCOP presented their official explanation based on what Philip Class concluded, that there really were two extraterrestrial invo objects involved with this sighting, Mars and Jupiter. Oh, man. And if you look at Mars and Jupiter were to the left, of where the plane's heading was, but they were up there. However, to go from one above the other to side by side, Mars and Jupiter would have a tough time pulling off that reorientation in a matter of a, a few seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, one of the most obvious 
parts of the sighting was that it was one above the other and then side by side. The objects just sort of switched their orientation. Yeah. Um, how wrong can you be on that? This is where you're walking along this ladder or climbing up the mountain towards proving something. you got three guys there. Could they all be wrong? The objects were side by side and then suddenly are one above the other and then side by side. This doesn't even ask you how accurate could they be in describing the objects. It's just how accurate do you think they are in describing how the objects were oriented. Exactly, exactly. Um, now, we're at almost 90 minutes. Can you go a little bit longer? i got a few more questions for you. I, yeah. I, won't, I won't keep you too much longer, I promise. You stay all night if you want. All right. Well, <laughs> don't tell me that. We may be. <laughs> um, well, I want to I also touch on some other aspects of your amazingly rich career here. Um, now, I was surprised to find out that you had some interaction with Rick Doty in the 1980s. And, of course, he's a pretty infamous figure in the world of ufology. So I guess talk about, you know, what your take on that whole thing was as far as him, you know, seeding troublesome information, I guess you could say, to the uh, UFO well, community. My interaction with him was based on the document obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, mm -hmm. which was a report of a uh, landing at Kirtland, near Kirtland Air Force Base, a UFO landing near Kirtland Air Force Base. Again, this is uh, something you can read about on my website. Look up the paper entitled, Welcome to the Cosmic Watergate. Okay. What I call a curtain and landing document. Yeah. Is uh, featured in there. Uh, the reason I got involved with Doty was because he was the person who had uh, written this document, uh, which said essentially that guards at the Manzano Weapons Storage Area and another guard... Uh, at, in the uh, Sandia laboratory area, had seen a strange object flying around the area uh, one night in August of um, 1980. Yeah, there had in this document talks about some other sightings as well, but the one, the key one, was the one uh, of um, August something or other. I forget the date. 1980. I think it was 1980. Yeah. You can read that document and find out all about it, but basically some object was uh, making zigzag maneuvers east of the Manzano weapon storage area. That was Manzano weapon storage area. was where they had taken a small chain of mountains and put a great big double fence around it, drilled holes in it, stored nuclear weapons there. Yeah. And the guards traveled around this 24-7. And so one night they're driving along, see this thing going back and forth, and all of a sudden it drops down behind another little mountain that's east of them. And uh, shortly after that, a Sandia guard was driving along in a jeep, comes up to a, what he calls an alarmed structure, that is a building which has got a fence around it, and inside the fence is this bright object. So he takes his gun out of the, with him and starts to walk towards it. Oh, he couldn't communicate. All of a sudden, he lost communications with a, with headquarters. Oh, it was only like four miles away. He lost communication with headquarters, so he takes his gun and starts walking towards this bright object, which suddenly zipped upwards. And the uh, the story of that in the document says that the uh, the witnesses it wasn't a helicopter, and the witnesses the helicopter was a helicopter mechanic. <laughs> so you're so supposed to assume that because he was a helicopter mechanic, he knows something about what helicopters are like, what they sound like, what they can do, and so on. <laughs> yeah. The guards at the Manzano Weapon Storage Area had seen this light drop down behind the mountain, and then sometime later they see the same light go zipping upwards at a high altitude and disappear. 
So it sounds like multiple witness UFO sighting, uh, which would happen in 1980. Bill Moore got a hold of the document in um, December of 1980, I think. I'm not sure exactly. It was the summer of 1980 it was written. There were other things that happened with a guy by the name of Benowitz in the fall of 1980, which we won't go into because I guess another complete story. But at any rate, in 1985, I think it was, I happened to be on business, a business trip um, for the Navy, uh, attending a meeting at uh, right at uh, Colonel Air Force Base where Doty was stationed. And so I decided to see if I could get any further information on this case, I figured there should be a, a much more detailed story about what happened yeah. than just the little one doc, one document that was available. So I just dropped in on them, so to speak. I found out where the uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations headquarters was and walked in and uh, asked if Doty was there. And the uh, security guard said, no, he wasn't. He'd be back after lunch and come back then. And, so I left and then come back later and uh, said I was here to see Doty and uh, he was gentlemanly about it. He didn't turn me away. Took me into his office. I stuck a piece of paper in front of him. Said, "Did you write this?" <laughs> <laughs> and he admitted that he did. And in the course of the conversation, he led me to believe what he said. Led me to believe, maybe erroneously, but what he said seemed to me that there was another, there were other documents that one could get on this particular case. Yeah. Now, to be accurate about this, there were other documents, but they had to do with the Benowitz stuff. Mm -hmm. It was all tied in together. Yeah. I was interested in this particular landing document, the landing case. Were there more documents on that? Anyway, uh, I went back home, had some further correspondence with Doty about this, but then I wrote the Freedom of Information Act and I said, I want all all copies of all the documents associated with this particular case. And what they sent me was the document that I had already, plus the Benowitz documents, which I also had already. So there was nothing new. So I wrote back to him saying, wait a minute, Doty implied to me that there was more stuff. And basically over a series of months, I got Doty into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> the AFOSI uh, Freedom of Information Act guy by arguing that um, there should be more stuff available, and, and apparently they eventually brought Doty in and, and questioned him, uh, really, what was going on. Uh, well, what know. do you what do you think was going on? I mean, and and to couple that, what was your reaction when all the everything came out about what Rick Doty was really up to? Yeah, well, that, that all came out a long time after my involvement, and my involvement really just centered on this one event. Yeah. Trying to get further information on that. I have not had any correspondence to speak of with Doty well, since 1986 or 7 or whatever. Do you think he was trying to get his hooks into you? He wasn't trying to get anything out. He didn't give me that impression. Okay. He never told me anything. Yeah. Unlike Bill Moore, who's claiming that uh, Doty uh, was a, um, uh, a major source of, of information. Yeah, that's what I mean. Do you now, think? Bill Moore, by the way, investigate, had, had investigated this landing several years before I got involved with it. And uh, he, had, he had tried to talk to some of the witnesses. I tried to talk to, I wanted to get to talk to the witnesses too, but they wouldn't let me, uh, wouldn't get, wouldn't get past, get the first base on that. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's what, that's kind of what I was trying to say. Like, as you, far as Doty's further activities are concerned, I've read about them. I'm, as I said, though, I have not been involved, and uh, yeah, uh, maybe just as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, well, that's what I was kind of trying to ask you. It, it, it sounds like he was trying to bait you, maybe with with something. Maybe he was trying to rope you into into something. It's a scene, the impression I got from what you just described, as far as the the meeting went. Well. But it's all supposition, I suppose, right? And the implication, it gave me the implication that there were other documents and that I should write for them. Huh. I did. Oh, weird. And the only thing that I got was this stuff having to do with Benowitz, which is not what I was interested in. Yeah. Uh, and then, as I said, it seemed like I got Doty into trouble. Again, you can read this whole thing on my webpage. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Brumac 8K, number 8K. Number eight, letter K, right. That's right, dot com. Uh, we'll have links all over the place for it anyway. All right. Now, speaking of documents and stuff, as you said earlier, you're, you're pretty well known for getting this just huge amount of UFO files from the FBI. But in the ensuing years, I guess, what's your impression of how, you know, the FOIA has evolved and, you know, the quality of materials that's been received, not just from the U.S. government, but also, you know, how we're having these file dumps from world governments. Is it, is it getting to the point now we're just getting overwhelmed with documents to the point where we don't really need them anymore, I guess? Do you know what I mean? Well, and when this major document search began, was um, of course, there have always been, I guess, document searches of some sort or other. Mm-hmm. Some project blue book files were released in the 1960s. The Conan study released the uh, so-called Robertson Panel Report for the first time. You could read the whole, basically the whole thing. But it wasn't until 1975 when the Freedom of Information Act was released that things really began to roll. Uh, in 1976, the uh, Air Force put Project Blue Book files. Remember, Project Blue Book closed in 69. Uh, and uh, it was decided that Rather than destroy everything, they would put it all on microfilm. Yeah. I think the documents still exist at Maxwell Air Force Base or someplace or other. But what you have access to is uh, microfilm versions of, of stuff. And the microfilm became available in 1975, I think it was. And I started going to the National Archives. I was living in Washington, just outside Washington, D.C. It wasn't that tough to go down to the National Archives, spend a few hours. That was back in the old days when uh, things were e- more or less easy to do. Yeah. You could walk back into the roll, into the f- aisles of microfilm up the wazoo, and there were the 92 rolls of uh, Blue Book f- uh, microfilm standing on the shelves just waiting for somebody to look. Well, there's 100,000 pages there, and you can go blind, <laughs> cranky from one to the next. <laughs> You're supposed to have help by virtue of an index, the uh, opening index of the microfilm file, the first roll, uh, lists every case, uh, 13,000 uh, 13, or some number like that. And you have to then go to the roll where that case is and search until you find it. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking for a particular case. And then the cases aren't all filed and some are misfiled and there's weird things, and one of them, the Rogue River sighting case that I, that I like a lot, uh, was was buried in there by being split into pieces and so on. But anyway, um, I wrote for the, well, I was do, 
doing the McMinnville, the McMinnville photograph investigation. Mr. And Mrs. Trent had told me that uh, two weeks or something after their photos had been published, an FBI man had come to their house and searched it. So I wrote to the FBI asking if uh, they had any records on Paul Trent. And I said, as a Senate aside, oh, by the way, if you have anything else, please let me know. I didn't expect to get anything because nobody had ever said that the FBI was collecting UFO sightings. Yeah. And even Ruppelt, Captain Edward Ruppelt, who I mentioned earlier in his book, The UFO, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, in that he said that the FBI had not been interested in the subject. So I didn't, I didn't expect to get anything. Uh, I wrote to the, uh, when I wrote in 1970, fall 76, I got back a letter saying they were supposed to respond within 10 days. So I got back a letter saying your response, your request is number 37,256 or some big number like that. <laughs> so I figured by the year 2010, I might hear something. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, uh, it was, uh, May, I think, of, uh, 1977 that I got a phone call from, from a very surprised FBI agent who says, uh, well, I've dug up over a thousand pages of stuff. I had no idea that the FBI did anything on this subject. Uh, and he said he'd be willing to pick out the, uh, what he figured were the best pages and send them to me. That was back in the days when it cost money per page. Yeah. So that was fine. 416 pages or something he copied and I paid oh, like wow. 30 or 40 bucks or whatever it was. Turned out that there were actually 1600 pages. That's now on, for the last 10 years or so, it's been on the internet as uh, 16 PDF files, I think, whatever you can download. No, but do you think that the power of these files has yeah. diminished over the years since there's well, been so many? And, and, you know, it sounds like back then it was quite a boon for you to find out this information. Sure, well, but, you, you know, know now yeah, they're covering their tracks a little better. What, what then was, it was old, old knowledge that was new information. Yeah. Now it's old knowledge that's old information because it's been around for so long. Nevertheless, people are still not thoroughly familiar with what's in the what's in the documents, in the FBI documents. There's a couple of documents that say, written in 1952, that say the top-level uh, Air Force people are seriously, seriously considering interplanetary spaceships. They told that to the FBI, but they wouldn't tell that to the general public. And you can read about it in my book, UFO, UFOs, uh, the UFO-FBI Connection. And also, I think I got something about it on the, on the uh, website. But, you know, after the FBI... Then in December of 1978, you had the CIA that had been sued. Initially, the CIA said they had only a Robertson panel report. Then under a search, they came up with 900 and some pages of stuff that was releasable under the uh, Freedom of Information Act request. The NSA ultimately coughed up some documents. Um, and then in the middle 80s, the, the Air Force, well, these agencies are continually going through declassification procedures. Yeah. And so just under normal declassification, they came up with a declassification of Air Force intelligence files in the middle 80s, and we got more information coming out um, about what happened in the, in the 1947-48-49 time frame. We're getting more and more information about what happened early on, so now we can write a better history. That's why well, my history, the UFO-FBI connection, for example, yeah. is a better history than could have been written uh, even in 1977. I got the FBI documents. I nearly needed a whole bunch of Air Force documents to set the FBI documents in their in their context. The documents have shown, in general, that there was interest in keeping track of this situation. Although there's no no smoking gun 
in the documents. That is, there's no nothing that says at a particular place at a particular time there was a piece of something or other, uh, or that uh, General So and So went on record as saying that such and such a UFO sighting actually involved an extraterrestrial spaceship. You won't find something like that. Yeah. What you did find the FBI file about the interplanetary uh, visitors idea was even that was sort of like in the extreme and. They would have told the FBI only because the FBI was acting like a black hole. No one ever expected that the Freedom of Information Act would uncover those documents. Yeah, exactly. But it did. And uh, so anyway, the document, most of the document releases were up through the early 1990s, and after that, they sort of fall off. In the United States, people have complained, you know, hearing about all... Spain and France and England and Australia and New Zealand and so on, releasing documents. And they're saying, why don't they release documents in the United States? Well, the answer is they released stuff in the United States, probably released all they're going to. No, there are very few formerly top secret documents that have been declassified. Uh, and if this subject is really as important as we think it is, it's in the top secret world that it would reside, and they're not releasing top secret stuff. Yeah. So don't hold your breath. <laughs> One question always is, what's, good, what, what's this all about disclosure? When are they going to disclose? My feeling for years has been Uncle, Son, Uncle Sam's never going to admit to it until it's proven, other, proven already. Then Uncle Sam will say, oh, well, we knew about it all along. To sort of head towards the close here, you know, you've been looking at this phenomenon for 40 years. Uh, in your learned opinion, what do you think is really going on here with UFOs, and do you think we're ever really going to find out the answer, whether it's through sheer science or via, you know, some kind of government disclosure or an accidental disclosure or intentional disclosure via whomever is behind the UFOs, if you will? So that's sort of a large question, but um, I'm hoping that, you know, you'll have a wizened answer for yeah, us on that. we find the answer, I suppose we probably will. we live long enough. But there's certainly a lot of people who think they have the answer right now. A lot of people who are speculating, people who, who admit they're speculating, and people who don't admit they're speculating and claim they know the answer. Uh, as for me, I don't, wouldn't claim that I know what's, what's going on, uh, but I know something is going on. Even conventional science doesn't even go that far. They think it's all misidentifications, hoaxes, and delusions. And uh, I think there's something really out there. But where they came from, what they're doing, why they're doing it, I don't know. I could offer speculations along with everybody else, but I don't know if that's going to do us any particular good. There's a group of people who are trying to do so-called exopolitics, which I think is probably something is needed in the form of some, some form of exopolitics, but not necessarily the way it's being practiced at the present time under this function that... Uh, the guys upstairs are all good guys. Yeah. We don't really know. We can assume that they're doing whatever they want to do. And uh, I'm worried about the impact on us. But obviously, they're not being, being totally covert with what they're doing. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any settings at all. That's true. Yep. Absolutely. So maybe the, the best guess that I can make is, is this is part of a, a learning program or an acclimation program. And after we're uh, thoroughly acclimated to their presence, whatever that means, uh, maybe then we'll know what the answer is.
Are you hopeful to see it in your lifetime, or do you think this is something that's going to last another we three or four generations? We have to know whether we face love, hate, or indifference. I see what you're saying, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's still that's a, that's the that's the sixty five thousand dollar question, or however you say it. It's, yeah, sixty five billion. There you go. Or exactly. Trillion, maybe trillion. Getting <laughs> close to the national debt. <laughs> well, having been in this forty years, do you are you happy that you that you've spent so long in this, or do you look back and say, "Shit, I wish I never went to that conference from NICAP back in the late sixties? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I ever said. Uh, I wish I hadn't gotten involved in it. There may be other things that I wish I hadn't hadn't done uh, or wasted time on specific cases or something like that. But yeah. uh, as far as getting into it or out of it, no, I haven't uh, haven't even contemplated what my life would be like if I hadn't gotten involved. Interesting. Okay. Well, as we said, we've you've written countless articles. You've made just tons of you know speaking appearances, and you've got the five books: UFO, FBI, Connection. UFOs are real. Here's the proof. Could UFOs be real? And Melbourne episode, case study of a missing pilot. An abduction in my life. There you go. An abduction in my life. Actually, looking at the title of your books, I did want to ask you, you wrote, could UFOs be real in 1991? And then you followed that up with, UFOs are real. Here's the proof. So I found that kind of interesting. Did you, you know... Well, well, the book, Could UFOs Be Real, is really... The answer is yes. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Um, supposed to be an educational book. I I guess I wrote it. I I, it was uh, something that, so far as I know, was never never widely published. The guy who was uh, promoting that that book, uh, I don't think he ever got anywhere. I was. There have been things on the internet available for, for example, from Amazon that. Uh, surprised me. Things that I never intended to be books per se. Oh, yeah. That turn out to be stuff. You know, the, the uh, UFO IB FBI connection, they'll sell for 200 bucks or something nowadays. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, books that are out of print. The abduction in my life book is, is, is not out of print in the sense that I've got a bunch of clean, vol- clean copies of them. Yeah. Uh, but nobody knows it, I guess, so nobody asked me for them. Until now. It's mentioned, it's mentioned on my website. Oh. So you can read some stuff about the uh, the books there. Okay. And uh, so so what, what do you have cooking, you know, for over the next few years? What do you have planned? you got any new books in mind, or what are you working on? Well, probably just more of the same, case analysis and uh, uh, keeping up with the field. I have thought about writing... I could take all my case analyses, for example, put them into a big compilation, I suppose. But I don't know if anybody would really uh, care, and a lot of that stuff's already on the Internet. You get it for nothing. Why sell it as a book? Now, well, you said keeping up with the field. Now, with the risk of getting you, at the risk of pushing the snowball down the hill on another lengthy answer, because I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but, you know, you've seen this thing grow and change since the late 1960s. Are you happy with the way it's turned out? Or do you think it could be better? Do you wish that ufology would go in a different direction or try something different or stop getting involved in this conspiracy element of it? I mean, what are your thoughts on the way the field has changed over the last 40 years? Well, four years ago, we expected the answer would be right around the corner. And it's been a long corner. <laughs> and we're still turning. <laughs> it's becoming a four, or fifth, or sixth dimensional corner, I guess. I'm not really sure. The way it's changed, it's gotten 
probably a lot more complex, and you have people coming into the field that don't really have the grounding and the history that you used to have. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have to read a bunch of books nowadays in order to understand what happened in the first 10 years. As a matter of fact, I've often argued if we knew really what happened in the first five years, we'd have the answer to the question. But uh, the government prevented us from learning um, a lot of stuff that was known within the first five years and uh, established a tradition that there was nothing to it. So the scientists basically said, why should we pay any attention to UFOs? Uh, and we're still, still, still stuck in that tradition. We're trying to get out of the... Get, uh, get to the proof somehow that there really is something going on, that uh, a proof that is convincing the scientific community. Yeah, yeah. Failing that proof, you just have a bunch of people running around speculating on what's going on, some of them scientists, some of them not, uh, some scientific, some speculations being reasonable, many of them not, I think. Uh, There's just a, a wider scope of... Uh, things moving in ufology now than there were 40 years ago, and of course you have an extreme increase in information transfer rate. I mentioned earlier in this discussion that one of the cases I looked at uh, years ago in the early 70s, it took weeks before we found out about it. Nowadays you find out the next day, Yeah. almost no matter where it is in the world. Yeah, or in hours. Somebody posts on the internet that they just saw something and uh, you know it within minutes. Yeah, it's it's quite a it's quite a remarkable change in the way things have uh, been, and it takes hours just to keep up with Facebook and, uh, and my email. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine you on Facebook, but I will take your word for it. <laughs> well, you can look me up. All right. Well, Doctor Bruce Maccabee, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, giving us so much time, some extra time here. Um, you've just had such a remarkable career, and. I feel like we've really only scratched the surface, but you've given us a really amazing look at the sites and, and the cases and the personalities and the, and the changes in the field that you've seen over the last 40 years. A really invaluable amount of insight here in the last hour and a half plus, and I really can't thank you enough. I'm sure this interview will be listened to and enjoyed by people for years and years to come and will provide a wealth of information for future students of the UFO phenomenon. As I said, you're a legend in the field. It's really been an honor to get you on the program here and have the chance to examine your remarkable career. So thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck in your continued work and look forward to uh, reading more articles from you and hopefully maybe another book someday or just catching you at a speaking engagement at one of these conferences in the not-too-distant future. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a delight. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks to one of the true luminaries in the world of ufology, Dr. Bruce Maccabee, for coming on the show and, as you heard, giving us so much additional time. Of course, you can find out more from him at his website, www.brumac.8k.com. That's B-R-U-M-A-C dot number eight, letter K dot com. Check it out. Moving right along now, even though we're kind of behind the times here on getting the episode out to folks, I do want to do some listener email because this is, as I noted at the beginning of the show, episode number two of the final four of season five, and I definitely won't be doing any listener feedback. 
on the final episode. So we've only got two more chances to do listener feedback, and I want to make the most of those opportunities. So let's dive into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. I picked out four here for this week's segment. The first one comes from Mike in Minneapolis. Here's what he has to say. Thank you for all the awesome BOA podcasts and the excellent website. I've been listening to BOA Audio and reading the site for a while now, and have finally got around to sending you some much-deserved dough through PayPal. A suggestion for an excellent show for you to discuss on the Popcast is the Fox TV show Fringe. The show is an awesome mix of weird fringe science and interesting characters. John Noble as Dr. Walter Bishop is the best mad scientist on TV ever. The more I see of this show, the more I love it. Also, a suggestion for a guest on BOA Audio is to have Linda Moulton Howe back on the show. She's an excellent, fascinating guest. I love listening to her talk about UFOs, animal mutilations, crop circles, all very interesting stuff. She is one smart person who really knows her stuff. Thanks again for all the excellent audio and website content. I hope you will keep it up for many years to come. Signed, another, in parentheses, Mike from Minneapolis. Wow, bunch of different stuff there to respond to. First of all, thank you, Mike. I echo your hopes for many more years to come of BOA Audio and BOA in general. I want to thank you heartily for your donation to Banal of America. I really appreciate it. I'm going to be hitting people hard here as we close out another rousing season of Banal of America audio. So allow me to thank you since you have made a preemptive donation. It's very much appreciated and it will go a long way to helping us pay the bills that have accumulated over the course of season five. I've passed along your podcast suggestion to JV. And I have Fringe Season 1 on DVD. I'm going to check it out as soon as I can because I want to try and get in sync with the new season when it starts soon. So stay tuned. There's a good chance we'll be getting to Fringe on the podcast. And finally, I would love to have Linda Moldenhaugh back on the show. Trust me. I would say right now, obviously, since we've already taped all of Season 5, it's going to have to happen in another season but I'm willing to bet we will have LMH back on BOA Audio at some point in the future. I love talking to her. I had a great time during that interview, and it really generated a lot of buzz throughout the world of Esoterica. So having her back on the program would be great. That brings up a whole other issue, Mike. You've preempted another aspect here of these final episodes of Season 5, and that is that it's time for guest suggestions from the BOA Audio listeners. Now, I know... I say this at the end of every season, people send in tons of guest suggestions. Some of the folks end up on the air in the following season. Some folks don't make it on the show. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't send in your guest suggestions. Even if you sent them in last season and we didn't get your guest on, send it to me again. Tell me you really want to hear from this guest and I'll do my best to get them on the program. I'm already putting together the list here for season six. And it's looking pretty cool. I'm bringing some old guests back. I'm bringing in some new folks for the program. It's going to be quite a mix of previous BOA Audio guests, new guests, all kinds of different topics. So we're already putting all the ingredients together here for Season 6. And now it's time for you, the BOA Audio listeners, to add your spice of choice to Season 6. You'll hear the contact information in just a moment. Allow me to thank Mike once again for the great email. I really appreciate the donation and the props about the program and the website. I know the BOA staff 
appreciates it as well. Next email is short and sweet. It comes from Billy in Aberdeen, Scotland, and he just says, Love to listen to all your shows. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Billy. There's not much to say in response to that, but I wanted to include your email here at the end of the program because, as noted, you're writing all the way from Aberdeen, Scotland. i got to put together some kind of map here and get the push pins in on all the different countries that have contacted us. Billy, you have planted the BOA Nation's flag in Scotland. Much appreciated, sir. International listeners, I know you're out there somewhere. Send me your correspondence, and we will definitely highlight it here at the end of the program. Third email in the batch comes from Russell, also short and sweet. Here's what he has to say. Please don't put anything more on about the fictional made-for-TV Lost series. It has nothing to do with UFOs, etc. Russell. I wrote Russell back. It sounds kind of harsh here, this email that he sent me, but he's a sweet guy, and he's cool, so it wasn't in a mean-spirited way. And I can understand his point of view. I know a lot of folks didn't tune in to the Lost Cast series finale, even though we included it as part of Season 5. The big reason was because it was a five-guest showcase there as we closed the book on the Lost Cast, and quite frankly, just a shitload of work for me. So I had to, you know table BOA audio for the week, and I didn't want to sort of let this one go and slip through the cracks. In addition to all that, it also sort of kicked off the podcast, which we've been doing now, and hopefully Russell doesn't mind that I'm doing the podcast. That way we can kind of keep the pop culture and esoteric separate here on the different BOA audio programs. So nonetheless, I don't expect to do another Lost episode of BOA audio anytime soon. I can assure you of that, Russell. But you never know what might come up in the future, and I'm not going to apologize for doing some non-paranormal shows every now and again. We can't do UFOs and Bigfoot and conspiracy theories every week. Sometimes there's a compelling story on the fringes of the esoteric that deserves discussion, and you're going to hear it on BOA Audio. We're never going to shy away from those stories, folks, like our previous edition of the program here with Tim Donaghy. But I've heard... Your call, loud and clear, Russell, thank you for writing in. Don't worry, no more Lost episodes, but cover your ears. There may be some other pop culture episodes somewhere down the line in the future. I'm not going to ever close the book on that option. And finally, we got an email here from Bob, No Hometown Listed. Here's what he has to say. I just wanted to drop you a line and let you know that I've really been enjoying Season 5 of Been All of America. The last two episodes on the Catholic Church and the Deja Vu phenomenon have been two of the best interviews so far. Your interviewing style of being friendly, open, and most of all interested makes for some of the best interviews I have ever heard, especially in the esoteric fields. I have to say I was not really interested in either topic before the shows, but I found both shows fascinating. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the good work. Bob. Thank you for writing in, Bob. Thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate them. And I really feel affirmed, I guess you could say, via your email. We've definitely gone off the beaten path here this season, although I think that was sort of the case over the last two seasons as well. I'm always open to the fringe of esoterica, as we just noted here for Russell's email, but especially stuff like, as you said, the Catholic Church situation and the Deja Vu phenomenon, as well as the Santa Muerte episode from a couple of weeks ago. 
there's so much stuff out there, folks, in the world of esoterica that just does not get the headline status of UFOs, conspiracy theory, and cryptozoology, also ghost hunting, of course, that a lot of these stories and topics sometimes slip through the cracks. And my goal here with this program is to highlight those stories and bring some of those folks on the show to talk about their amazing research into stuff that chances are a lot of folks listening to the program have never really heard about or considered in the first place, kind of like what Bob is saying here. To tie that back around to Mike in Minneapolis's email, not only are we looking for guest suggestions for Season 6, we're also looking for topic suggestions in Season 6. So if you have the opportunity and you have the idea for something you want to hear us talk about, shoot me an email and we will definitely dig into it. And as I said, if you've emailed me before, don't hesitate to do it again if I didn't get back to you or if we didn't get your guest slash topic covered here in Season 5. We have limited slots. Scheduling can be difficult with some of these guests. And I will always be honest with you folks as far as what is going on with your requested guest slash topic. And on that note, thank you to Bob for writing in. Thank you to Russell for writing in, as well as Billy in Aberdeen, Scotland, and Mike in Minneapolis. All great BOA audio listeners all had something cool or interesting to say here at the end of the program. How do you get in touch with me? How can you vie for a spot in the final BOA Audio listener feedback of the season, and how can you get in touch with me to request a guest or topic? That's simple. Here are the means of communication. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, or just go to binallofamerica.com, b-i-double-n-a-double-l-of-america.com, and click the contact button. Also, you can go to the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. And of course, as I've been noting here at the end of the show for a while, there are all the different social networking sites we can find me Twitter, MySpace, and Facebook. Just punch in Banal, B I double N A double L, befriend me, follow me, poke me, it's all good. And chances are you're going to get some cool inside nuggets via one of those social networking mediums so those are all the methods trust me i read all the correspondence i get i try to write back to as many people as possible some emails slip through the cracks but i like to think my record so far is at about 85 to 90 percent send me your feedback on the season as a whole or the last few episodes or anything you want to tell me including thoughtful, constructive criticism. I can take it. I want your feedback, folks. And if it's particularly pithy or it hits on a topic I have been meaning to discuss here at the end of the show, it just may be included in the final BOA Audio listener feedback segment of the season next week. Up next, of course, you know what it is. It is the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to roll through the list of the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. Three new columns at BOA since the last time you heard from me. Marla Pena's Shadow of the Shinigami looks at the crop circle enigma. Richard Thomas's Sci-Fi Worlds features an interview with author Lance Parkman. And Leslie's Gray Matters discusses the Manson family and why there seems to be a weird interest in that horrific crime and cult. 
We say it week in and week out here at the end of the program, but it is true, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com, then you're only getting half of the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. I alluded to it briefly a moment ago, but it is time for me to come at you with my hand held out, folks, and ask for donations to the program and to BOA in general. The bills have been piling up here in Season 5, and I would like to get us on an even keel here as we close the book on the fifth season of BOA Audio. And in order to do that, it would be great if I could get some help from the folks who've been enjoying the program over the last nine months or so. How can you help us out? That's simple. There are two ways to donate. You can just go to binallofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. That's pretty easy to find. They'll walk you through the whole process. It's very simple and very secure. Maybe you don't trust the internet. Maybe you don't trust those folks at PayPal. And you want to make a donation the old-fashioned way via snail mail. Well, we can hook you up with that, folks, because we have a P.O. box waiting for your mailed-in donation. Here is the address. Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. Let me go through that very specifically for you. It's Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T, Mass. 01866. So, all together now, it's Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. And, as always, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benall of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, it is the penultimate edition of BOA Audio Season 5, and we're welcoming another superstar esoteric researcher. This time around, it is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and it is a wide-ranging jam session of an interview that covers just a myriad of paranormal topics. It would be virtually impossible for me to tell you all the different areas we cover, all the different avenues we go down. It's a very organic interview, and as I said, it is truly a jam session of the BOA mold. Rosemary Ellen Galli not only has been in this field for almost 30 years or so, but she's also written over 40 books on just an amazing variety of esoteric topics. So there's so many different avenues we could have gone down in this conversation and did. So I'm really looking forward to people checking this one out. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Despite the delay here in getting you episode two of the final four, I'm going to work my ass off to get you episode three sooner than this one came at you. I know I've been saying that at the end of the show for the last few weeks, but this time I mean it. So stay tuned. You've been all of America for that coming at you, hopefully sooner rather than later. Plus, as an added bonus, at the end of the show, we're going to have a pop-in from our old friend, Peter Robbins. He's going to preview the upcoming Exeter UFO Festival, where he will be making a pair of presentations, and I will be serving as MC. Of course, you can find out more about that at ExeterUFOFestival.com. Hope to see a lot of BOA audio listeners in attendance. And on that note, we say goodbye here at the end of another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks once again to Dr. Bruce McAbee. It was a real thrill to have him on the show. 
Big thanks to Mike in Minneapolis, Billy in Aberdeen, Scotland, Russell, and Bob for writing in on BOA Audio listener feedback. And finally, of course, big thanks to all you great listeners out there. Thank you for your patience with this program. Thank you for sticking with BOA Audio and not just listening to the program, but writing in and supporting the show, making donations, and spreading the word about our creepy little esoteric podcast. I can't thank you enough, folks. You are the real voice of this program, and you are the fuel that drives the machine. Thank you so much for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. And until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.